guess out of an abundance of caution, uh, there is a little note here taped to the pulpit, which reads, have you checked your zipper? <laughs> you know, a guy four times in 12 years preaches a sermon without a zipper. I think that's a pretty good average, amen? About once every three years, freedom in Christ, and I just, I'm not bound by legalism, sometimes zippers up, sometimes it's down, all for the glory of God. <laughs> Some, over the years, people have asked me, they said, hey, is it, is it distracting when you're preaching? Like, people get up and, you know, go to the restroom and babies are crying, all that kind of stuff. I said, I don't even notice. I don't even notice what's going on around me, uh, so much so that the entire message last week, literally, there are three people in the front row holding up a sign, my wife being one of them, that said, zipper, I'm unfazed, I'm just preaching, Amen. Will not be distracted by anything for the glory of God. Well, in the course of uh, human history, uh, there have been some monumental victories that have been won uh, by some incredible teams, like the 2022 Bengals, amen? And uh, most of the major victories uh, we've seen around the world happened uh, kind of in a similar pattern or formula, if you will. A leader fashions a plan, they communicate that plan, and they rally and motivate people to follow that plan religiously no matter how things are going. In the world of sports, there's been a phrase that's become popular over the years, and that phrase is trust the process. Work the plan, trust the plan, know the plan, trust the process. And so victories are often won when when the team is clear on the plan. In good days and bad days, they simply trust the process. We see this in coaching when a team builds a championship culture. Uh, We've seen it uh, played out in war. Uh, Winston Churchill led Britain to victory Uh, Despite some incredibly challenging times in World War II, the vision was clear. They knew exactly what they were called to do, and they stayed uh, faithful to the course under much duress over a long period of time. And so we see that in sports, we see that in war, and we also see that uh, in the kingdom of God as Jesus casts a compelling vision and invites us to trust the process and go and make disciples as the primary pursuit of our life. And Let me say this on the front end. Winning championships and winning wars uh, is hard, but winning people to Christ is especially hard. And here's why. Uh, uh, The opposition is intense. Not only are we battling Satan and his demons on the outside, we're also battling our wicked and deceitful and idolatrous hearts on the inside. And so because that is so intense and so pressing on us, uh, the reality is we have to have a clear, concise plan, a rallying plan, if you will, that all of us can, can center our lives around. And here's the good news. Jesus gave us one. And we say it every single week before we leave, uh, called the Great Commission. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go and therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you till the end of the age. But here's the reality. If you study organizational leadership, uh, what you'll find is this, is that every organization has a temptation and a tendency to drift towards complexity. And churches are not only not exempt from that reality, uh, churches are the worst. You know why? We have a hard time saying no to anyone in church, right? Uh, We want to be kind and, and hey, if, if two programs are good, then 20 is better and And if 20 mission endeavors is good, then 100 is better. And so churches are notorious for having organizational drift uh, in their culture. And so what happens is we end up adding all these programs and opportunities, 
Because we don't want hurting feelings, we never cancel into the old things. And then we have this incredibly bloated calendar and we end up judging our effectiveness, not on whether or not we're actually making disciples, but on how busy we are. Rick Warren had a phrase I heard years ago. He said, Mary had a little lamb that would have become a sheep, but it joined a local church and it died from a lack of sleep, right? So we just, more is better. And if we're not careful, all of that programmatic clutter can cause us to drift from the actual simple message of making disciples for Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's the task at hand, and Paul's been modeling it for us. The book of Acts is all about this. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to Acts chapter 16 as we continue our series through the book of Acts titled The Movement. Last week in chapter 15, we hit a lot of deep theological water. We talked about uh, the, the difference between works and grace and what the relationship is there as uh, this incredible event in called the Jerusalem Council. Uh, But here in Acts chapter 16, now that they've settled, hey, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, uh, it's really practical. Paul models for us the habits of a great commission Christian, which is also the title of the message this morning. All right, so Acts chapter 16, let's look at verses 1 down through verse 10 uh, this morning. It says, and Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but, and this is key, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So that big Gospel showdown they had in Acts 15 called the Jerusalem Council. They said, hey, we're going to deliver to you the outcome of that, and it's good, good news of grace, all right? And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Verse 6, and they went throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here, if you've ever studied the New Testament, you know that Paul went on a few missionary journeys. And so here, Paul is branching out onto his second missionary journey. And uh, the gospel's spreading. Uh, the circle of the grace is, is widening uh, ever so rapidly and uh, all throughout the region. So Paul's already been to many of these places before. But this time, he's going back and he's taking friends with him, Silas and, and Luke. And, and he's got one mission. He wants to go and make Disciples, And so with that in mind, we're going to look this morning in this passage in uh, chapter 16, three habits of every disciple maker. So at the end of the service, if we ever say, hey, repeat the Great Commission with us, and you repeat that, but you're always wondering and wrestling like, hey, I get that, and it's biblical, it's right from the Bible, but what does that actually look like practically in my life? Like, how, how do you actually carry, live that out if that's our marching orders? Well, listen, you came on the right Sunday, because this is what Paul's going to teach in Model for us three habits of a disciple maker. And so uh, what I want you to see here first off in this passage is simply this. Is that a disciple maker intentionally invests in others. It doesn't happen by osmosis or by accident. 
Right, like they intentionally are looking around them, trying to find people they can pour their lives into. In verse one, Paul makes his way to Derby and Lister, and God blesses him uh, tremendously. When he gets there, there's this young guy that everybody's speaking well of, a guy named Timothy. And if you ever read the New Testament, you know Timothy, listen, he's a big deal, right? And he had an incredible impact uh, in the New Testament recordings. And so uh, Paul wrote two books specifically uh, to Timothy. Uh, listen to some of the terms about what Paul said to him and about him. Uh, Paul called Timothy his child. He urges him to do the work of an evangelist, to war the good warfare, to train yourself uh, for godliness. And so what we see is here, Paul looks at this guy and says, hey, here's a guy that can be trusted with the gospel, and here's a guy that I'm willing to, whatever God has done in my life, I'm willing to pour my life into this young man uh, and replicate whatever Christ has done in me. And so Paul identifies him, invites him onto the journey, begins to pour his life into someone spiritually. Now, do you know what you call that, that whole process? Discipleship. That's it. That's exactly what Paul's modeling here. And I want us to see this, uh, that it didn't happen by accident. It began by an intentional invitation. Paul hears about him, verse 2, and at the beginning of verse 3, here's what we read. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, what we know about Paul from a couple chapters ago is, hey, if he didn't want you to accompany him anymore, he had no problems, right? Remember chapter 15? Like, hey, let's take John Mark with us. Paul said, not happening. Right? He bailed ship one time, not happening. But he looks at Timothy's life and he says, you know what? Here's a guy who maybe I'm a little further along spiritually than him, that, that the brothers speak well of him. And so he intentionally looks at him, makes an invitation, says, I want you to join me. And as they're going about fulfilling the Great Commission, Paul begins to pour his life into him. Pretty simple, right? That if anyone would have looked at Timothy's life and said, hey, or Paul's life and said, hey, who are you discipling? Who have you identified that you're pouring your life into? Who, who do you meet up regularly and let them walk with you as you follow Christ, you invite them to follow you? Paul, without hesitation, could have said, oh, great question. This young guy that I'm pouring my life into, his name is Timothy. Now, here's a question for all of us. If someone asks us that same question, who are you discipling? Who are you pouring your life into? Who have you looked around and identified and said, hey, there's a person that I can invite to follow me as I follow Jesus. The question is this, could any of us or all of us or some of us point specifically to a name and say, this is the person I'm pouring my life into? Now, I'm not asking that question to elicit guilt in all of us. You've heard me teach this before. Guilt uh, doesn't work in the long term. It's great in the short term, Right? It doesn't transform hearts, it enslaves hearts. The gospel of grace is what transforms hearts, growing our affections for Jesus. So I'm not asking that to elicit guilt. What I'm asking, hey, listen, is I want you to understand, when we preach the Great Commission, when we say it every single week, it really is that simple. Looking around and finding someone like Paul does here in verses 2 and 3 and saying, hey, there's a person I can pour my life into, verse 2, Right, there's a person other people say has a high spiritual appetite, wants to know the things of God. And then in verse 3, he says, hey, I'm going to invite you to come with me as I'm pursuing Jesus. It really is that simple. And so be encouraged by that. How many of you would agree that simplicity would be a welcome guest in your house? Uh, just by a show of hands, 
How many of you have considered at some point, last year, two years, three years, whatever, getting rid of your smartphone? Has anybody ever said, I'm just going back to a dumb phone, right? The complexity that it brings, the I'm always available, I'm always online, I'm always connected, all those kind of things. And so uh, for most folks, there is a desire to move towards simplicity and there's a stress of complexity in life. So let's not add that into our spiritual lives. Let's just love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and find a person to model that to with intentionality. Now, if you're thinking, hey, that sounds way too simple, right? Like we need a formula, we need some training, we need a program, we need something like that. Let me just remind you all throughout the New Testament, people disciple people, not programs. And they could be vehicles into those relationships. I'm not down on that, we're for that. But at the end of the day, it really is that simple. And if you, you know, you're a person that says, hey, I like spreadsheets and formulas and plans and all those kinds of things. Let me remind you, this is exactly how Jesus made disciples, this simple. The Gospels, Jesus walks right up to people fishing and just says, hey, I'm gonna intentionally invite you to to drop your nets and and follow me. It really was that simple. They didn't know what the journey would entail. They didn't have a formula or plan or those kind of things. He just said, hey, I'm doing the Father's will and I'm inviting you to come alongside with me and let me pour my life into you. And so this is the mission of the church. And here's the, here's the incredible thing. God has chosen us as the vessels, cracks and all, flaws and all, to pursue Jesus intimately and pour into others intentionally. And so here's my question. Is there a greater job in the world? The answer is no. Is there a time in history where it may be more needed in our lifetimes than it is right now for people to model what it looks like to follow Christ and invite others to come along with them in the midst of a culture filled with chaos? What a time to be on mission for Jesus. Amen? Now we hear that and the safety of this room and the simplicity of this room, right? We're crowding out life, hopefully. Although some of you are on Facebook right now, I can see you if you think I can't. Right, and we're all charged up, like, oh, I, I can totally do that. I've made this so complex and, you know, all these kind of things. But, but what happens is we, we leave this environment where the world hopefully is crowded out for a few moments. And, and then real life begins to creep in. And all these excuses begin to settle into our lives. Let me just identify a few that I've wrestled with. I'm sure some of you have wrestled with that we're going to have to address if we're going to actually make disciples. Uh, one of them is this. I don't have time. I, I don't have time to to find someone and and pour my life into someone. I barely have time to keep up with my own life. You ever feel that way? As a pastor, I don't hear hear this very often. I don't know if I ever hear this. I don't ever meet with families and say, we we, we need your help. Yes, what is it? We've got way too much margin in our schedule. Could you help us? No one ever says that. You know, and I thought, hey, that's just the way life is when you got kids and, you know, uh, but when you get older, life begins to slow down. You know what I'm hearing more and more often from people who are retired, like my parents' age and that thing? You know what I'm hearing them say all the time? I have no idea how I ever had time to work. Right? Life just drifts towards complexity. Our book of the year, we choose a book every year. Say, hey, if you just read one book, read this book. The book of the year is uh, crazy busy. It addresses this problem about a hurried heart. And how it keeps us off mission from making disciples. So let me just lean in here just a little bit. If you're too busy to make disciples, listen, you're just flat out too busy. I mean, can you imagine heaven 
Being in heaven one day and seeing everything from God's eternal perspective, having the mind of Christ and, and thinking to yourself, I'm so glad that I let travel ball consume our lives in those key years. No one's saying that in heaven, amen? And so the reality is all of us, me included, we make time for things that are important. And so we've got to create margin. Uh, one of the other excuses we're going to have to push past is this. Uh, well, my kids are my disciples, now, this should be the reality for every person. I've got four kids in my house. I had three and one left, and I woke up one day, and they're back. <laughs> and I love this quote from Andy Stanley. Here's what he said. He said, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. And so the goal of Christian parenting is not to raise successful children. It's to raise faithful children. But the pattern of the New Testament clearly shows that disciple-making is not less than your own family, but it certainly is more than your own family. Think about this. If our disciple-making efforts are contained to the walls of our own home, then there's no hope for people who did not grow up in church like me. And so key points in my life, people who were not in my own house poured into me, invited me to follow them as they were following Christ, and it literally changed the trajectory of my life. And so we can't just say, well, my kids are... Those are my disciples. It's not less than that. It's certainly more than that. Uh, then third temptation is to say, well, that's kind of what we pay you to do, right? Like you're the professional and you know, you're wise and you're handsome. And no, Listen, those all, things are all true, right? All true. But here's the problem. If we just sub out disciple making to the professionals, the math doesn't work out. Let me just do the math for you. It's estimated there's about 31,000 pastors in the United States and there are roughly 329 million people. Now, what that means is if my math is correct, then I have the responsibility, along with other pastors, to disciple 10,612 people in my life to get the, get the work done, to get the gospel out, right? It's not gonna happen. Those, aren't, those odds aren't in our favor, and so it's gonna take all of us rowing the, the boat of a gospel ship to take the good news of grace to our neighbors and to the nation. So we, we have to push all these things to the side and say, hey, the primary passion and pursuit of my life is to make disciples, is to intentionally invest in someone else and invite them to follow Jesus as I follow him too. That's the call of God on everyone's life. And so, so before we move on, here's the challenge. Let me just give you a little challenge that we're still New Year, I guess, so people are still keeping resolutions. Make it a New Year's goal this year. And just say, hey, I'm going to find one person outside of my own family. I'm going to find one person this year to pour my life into spiritually. Don't complicate it. right? Just meet with them. Say, hey, can we study the Bible together? Can I pray for you? Check in on them spiritually. Invite them to serve with you. Invite them to join you on mission activities and mission trips and all those kind of things. Here's the goal. Find one person. Why? Because that's how the Great Commission gets filled. Paul looked at Timothy and said, hey, I like this guy. People speak well of him. He's got a heart for God. Verse 3, I want you to come with me as I'm pursuing Jesus. And so Great Commission Christians intentionally invest in other people. The second habit of disciple-making Christian, according to chapter 16, is this, is that if you're going to be a disciple-maker, you're going to have to minimize your liberties in an effort to maximize your ministry. In verse 3, we see that one of the first things that Paul does with Timothy, the cycle-making process, is to invite him to consider the rite of circumcision. Now, what's so crazy about that is this, is what we learned last week. Remember in chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, what the showdown was? 
These people are coming and preaching, adding on to the gospel, right? Preaching this legalistic Christianity. Say, hey, it's, it's good that you have Jesus as your foundation, but if you really want to have a right standing before God, you should also not only be a Christian, you should also be Jewish. You should get circumcised, you should observe the feasts and all these traditions and customs. And Paul was not having it. There's a showdown that literally changed the trajectory of Christianity and a battle for grace. And so chapter 15 ends with Paul winning the argument saying, it's not happening. We're not adding to the gospel of grace. And then chapter 16 opens, and here's a, here's a paraphrase. Paul looks over at Timothy, he's there getting ready to take the gospel, and Paul says, hey, Tim, Tim. Paraphrasing, all right. Um, I know you heard what I just preached back at Jerusalem at that big showdown. When I was waxing eloquent on the gospel of grace. Um, but I think it might be helpful uh, if you went ahead and submitted yourself to the rite of circumcision. What? Was, was chapter 15 a show? Is Paul becoming a hypocrite? Is Paul compromising uh, his convictions? No. Listen, what Paul's modeling here is that there are times we should voluntarily minimize our Christian liberties if, in fact, it may allow us an opportunity to maximize our ministry. Ask anyone who's ever been in vocational ministry. They'll tell you that's simply a part of the job. It's a part of it. If you, and listen, pastors can push back on that, so I don't want to do that, then do something else. There are times in ministry where, listen, there are things I can do legally and morally and according to the guidelines of my employment here that I voluntarily choose not to do because out of the concern that it may cause my freedom, exercising my freedom may limit my potential for ministry to other people. Like, for example, that's why when I go to the beach, I refuse to wear a two-piece. It's not, I'm gonna be a stumbling block, Amen. Folks would stumble, that's for sure, right? You know, there, listen, there's nothing in the Bible that requires me to preach with my zipper, but sometimes I do anyway. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do, most of the time I do. But here's the reality. For every person, in every context, and in every culture, that looks different, whatever that may be. And here in this culture, uh, Paul was inviting Timothy to consider something that he wasn't, he wasn't required to do. It certainly didn't improve his standing before God spiritually. That's what Paul just argued against in chapter 15. But remember how they described Timothy? We read through those verses two times in 10 verses. what they say? His father was a Greek. Right, two times. And what was that the big deal? Because Paul said, hey, when we're gonna go out among these Jewish audiences and try and preach the gospel to him, there is the potential that they may discredit you as a messenger of God because they know that because your father's Greek, your mother's Jewish, but your father's Greek, that you haven't submitted yourself to all the Jewish customs and traditions, and so they're not going to take you seriously, and you're not required to do this. It's within your rights to not have to do this, but if you'll voluntarily lay aside your rights, Timothy, I think it will give us a bigger platform to the gospel for these people that we're trying to reach who are Jewish. And so that's what he's preaching. Listen, uh, it's the same idea that Paul preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul said this in verses 19 through 23, for though I'm free to all, Right, Paul said, I'm free in Christ. I've made myself, just voluntarily, no one asked him, no one forced him. He was a Roman citizen, had all kinds of rights. 
I made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. That, that's what's happening here, right? He said, hey, Timothy, we're trying to win some Jews to Christ. If you're a little more Jewish, I think it might give us an opportunity to share the gospel more effectively. To those under the law, I became one under the law, right? He knows his freedom in Christ, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became uh, as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. And here's his motive in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with him in its blessings. Now, why is this so important to understand? Not only is it certainly being modeled in this passage, being taught. Why, why is it important to this, do this? Because there's a tremendous amount of demanding our rights as citizens of this great country. And if we're not careful, we'll do that to the point that we'll forget that our ultimate citizenship, according to the gospel, is in heaven. And that's where our citizen loyalties ultimately belong and what should motivate us. And the biblical picture for disciple makers is not demanding your rights, it's being willing to lay them aside if it gains an audience for the gospel. And here's what people say in this current cultural moment, because I've heard it. Well, you're just not willing to fight. Listen, quite the opposite is true. I'm willing to lay aside every right, freedom, privilege I have in the fight to get the gospel to people who need it. Quite the opposite is true. We should fight for opportunities to share the gospel. We should be willing to lay aside whatever things we have that might be hindrances to gospel conversations. Now, you think, well listen, I hear what you're preaching, that's great in the Bible, but we're in a unique moment in our culture. And who would, who would, who would do that? Who would invite people to say that, preach as well, but who would do that? Paul would. That's what he's doing right here. That's what he's teaching in 1 Corinthians 9. That's what he modeled as a citizen of Rome and all, the, all that afforded him. Who else would, would do that? Timothy does that. Well, that's two, right? <laughs> Who else would do that? Jesus Christ, who did not give up his divine nature at the incarnation, but he laid aside his divine privileges and prerogatives. Why? So that he could reach the world and call the world to himself. And so Paul's Roman citizen, he's not bound by that. Timothy's a non-Jew, invites him to do that same kind of thing. And so what happens is if we're not careful, listen, good things like personal freedoms, I'm not down on any of that. Right, listen, I make my living under the banner of religious liberty. Right, don't, don't, don't be lost on that. But if we're not careful, good things that we enjoy can become God things. To the point we wouldn't voluntarily lay them aside even if it meant an opportunity to be a missionary to other people. Now, if you're listening, say amen. How do you know if your own rights have become an idol? And, and this is not hard. The same way that you know that anything's become an idol in your life from James chapter four. James chapter four teaches the progression of idolatry. It starts off with a God-given desire. Do I have a desire to be autonomous and free and self-governing? Yeah, absolutely. But what happens is that desire grows into a demand. And when someone doesn't meet my demand, I judge them as being unwilling to do what I need them to do. And after I judge them and deem them guilty, then I punish them or threaten to punish them. So how do you know if an, 
anything in your life's become an idol, when someone won't grant it to you or when someone threatens to take it from you, you threaten to punish them in return. And so what happens is if we're not careful, listen, the call to Jesus is not a call to self-promotion, self-preservation, self-protection. It's a call to self-denial. And here's what Paul's teaching Timothy, in turn teaching us. He's saying, hey, there's some things that you don't have to do legally. It wasn't a law that Timothy would undergo the rite of circumcision. And Paul's saying, hey, you don't even have to do this spiritually. I just defended that in chapter 15 in a big way. But what he's saying is, Timothy, this might be an occasion where you're willingly minimizing your liberties in an effort to maximize your ministry for the gospel. Not because it's necessary, but because it might be evangelistically profitable. We see this being played out in missions today. There are people ministering in Muslim countries and in certain contexts, they wear burqas in third world countries. Why? Not because it's biblically required or spiritually profitable, but because they know that to refuse to do so would forfeit an audience for the gospel. When we take mission teams into Guatemala, you know what they say? They say, hey, we don't want to be legalistic and, and we know the Bible doesn't require this. Um, but when you come, when we got to these other villages and share the gospel with them, uh, we're going to ask you to voluntarily lay aside some of your freedoms so that we can maximize our ministry. And so you know what they do? They say, hey, the ladies that come, there's nothing wrong with wearing pants. But when you come, we've got these villages, we're going to ask that you wear dresses. We're going to ask if men have earrings or visible piercings. We're asking you to take those out. And they ask men and women, they say, if you've got tattoos, that's a sign of pagan worship in our culture. And so we're going to ask you, men and women, to cover up your tattoos. Why would they ask us? Is it biblically required? No, because they know that in that context, we need to minimize our liberties so that we can maximize our ministry. And it's not spiritually required, but it's evangelistically required profitable. Now, let me let you in a little secret about me. Despite preaching all that, deep convictions about all that, it's what's in the text, we see it modeled all over. Let me let you in a little secret about me. As a general rule of thumb, I don't like to be told what I can and cannot do. Do I have any friends in the room? You know, for example, fasten your zipper. <laughs> Tell me what to do. I don't like to be told what I can and cannot do. But here's what I want you to understand. I'm preaching to myself. If I'm going to be a great commissioned Christian, then guess what? I need to hold on to my rights and my freedoms loosely and hold on to the gospel mission tightly. And there are times and places and moments and situations that's different for everybody in every culture. And every, I get all of that. There are times when I have to willingly minimize my liberties for the sake of maximizing my ministry because the gospel going forth is more important than me getting to do what I want to do. You know who wants to do what they want to do all the time? Children. You know who does what they have to do to take on responsibilities? Grown-ups. Now, I rarely ask people to do this because I think it can lead to really dangerous ways of interpreting the scripture. So let me just say that disclaimer, but I think I can do it safely here, all right? So, so here's what I want you to do, and then we're going to move on. I want you for a moment, if you could, just pretend that what Paul asked him to do was not gender specific, all right? I want you, if you could, just for a moment, put yourself in Timothy's shoes in this passage. 
with all your rights and all your freedoms and all your Christian liberties, all that, you know, put yourself in his shoes. And a person who's pouring into you says, hey, you don't have to do this, but I think it would be profitable if you did. You got the rights to say no. You got Christian freedoms to say no. But I think it might be evangelistically profitable if you would lay those all aside. Now put yourself in Timothy's shoes. I want to ask you a question. How would you respond? Would you throw a fit? With protest? Would you form a committee or group? How would you respond? And I've wrestled with that as a person who doesn't like to be told what to do. I've wrestled through that in my own life this week. And so the question becomes, if I'm going to be a Great Commission Christian, guess what? I've got to be willing to minimize my liberties in an effort to maximize my ministry. That, it's different, but there are times where God is going to call you to do that. It's been a part of my life. It's going to be a part of your life, not because I'm in the ministry, but because we're trying to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And so let's all pray, then I'll move on. Let's all pray that God would burden our hearts so deeply for people who don't know Jesus that gospel missions would become more important than personal freedoms. That was a good place for an amen and you missed it. Let me say it again. Gospel missions would become more important than personal freedoms. All right, good. One person is alive and Pentecostal and filled with the Spirit of God this morning. I heard you. And so as a disciple-making Christian, we intentionally invest in other people. Like we're not waiting like, hey, if anyone wants to know about Jesus, I'm here, I'm about, no. Intentionally, I'm finding people, pouring my life in them. Secondly, I'm willing to minimize my liberties if need be. It's not always required, but if need be. All right, and the third thing, we'll hit this quickly. Third thing is, uh, I've got to learn to listen and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Now for the sake of time, let me just address this quickly, but it's too important to skip over. Paul is, is out in verse five, is as it describes it out, strengthening the churches, right? Like he's been through this region before. And as they continue to travel to make disciples, something very interesting happens. Uh, look at verses 6 and 7. Go back to verse 6. What's it say? And then they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having, listen to this, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Magia, they attempted... To go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, just so there's no confusion, the Spirit of Jesus is the same thing as the Holy Spirit. Don't let there be any confusion about that. But this is a big deal. The Holy Spirit is a Him, not an It. And the Bible teaches the Spirit of God indwells every believer and convicts us over sin, opens up our eyes to truth spiritually. That's called the doctrine of illumination. Right, comforts us when we're grieving, but also the Spirit of God guides us into opportunities. And, and here's what's fascinating, according to this, the Spirit also at times guides us away from other potential opportunities. You ever heard somebody say, hey, I'm just looking for an open door, and if it's open, I just go through it. Well, Paul had a wide open door to spread the gospel, right? The Great Commission said, hey, all doors are open at the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11. It's open to the Gentile. I mean, nobody's off limits, Right? Paul's a hard charger, <coughs> but here he's also a person who's sensitive to the Spirit of God. And so what, what does it look like? Listen, if I'm going to be a Great Commission disciple-making Christian, guess what? Then, the, then the, 
goal of my life is to be yielded to the Spirit of God. So, so I can be led by the flesh, right? I can say, this is what makes sense to me, and in my wisdom, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and here's the ministry, and here's the mission, and, and all those kind of things, and, and I'm going to do all those kind of things. Or I can walk by faith and stay in step with the Spirit of God. And so listen, what he's teaching here is that the mission of our life and the mantra we should repeat with deep conviction is if the Lord wills, and, and Lord, wherever you lead, I will follow. But if we're honest, so often, me included, our lives aren't governed by a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. They're governed by the clock and the calendar and what I've got to get done. And listen, I'm totally guilty of that. And so this goes back to a principle that we taught over and over and over again. So, so let me just say it one more time. Intimacy with Jesus, not obedience, is the goal of the Christian life. The bullseye that you and I are shooting for is not obedience. The bullseye that we're shooting for is intimacy with Jesus. And if you pursue intimacy with Jesus, you know what the overflow will be in your life? Obedience. Intimacy is the goal. Obedience is the overflow. And I'm not down on obedience. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. But if I love him, spend time with him. And as he Living that spirit-filled life, abiding in Christ. Guess what? The overflow is I'll be walking in the spirit, resisting temptation, and obedience will be the overflow of my life. And what happens is when you pursue that kind of life, what happens is there'll be some times where the spirit of God will direct you, and I want you to hear this, in ways that do not make sense to you. You ever had encounters in your life that practically speaking make no sense whatsoever? Now I know about you, I like everything to make sense to me. And God will ordain circumstances and providentially engineer relationships and opportunities that, that will not make sense to you. And so the question is not, will this make sense to me and I'm gonna put a flow chart together and graph this all out and weigh the pros and the cons. I'm not, I'm not against any of those discerning things, but, but here's at the end of the day, what should trump all of that, what trump all of that is an intimacy with Jesus that we're walking in the spirit-filled life to the point where if he says, hey, I know this makes sense, but I'm forbidding you to go over there, you just say, hey, I don't know why, but I'm willing to readjust my life to the spirit's leadership. And so here's what I want you to understand. The foundation of missions is intimacy with Jesus. Because not only will he guide you into opportunities and relationships and providential gospel conversations, but apparently, according to this, there are times where he guides you away from things that in your human wisdom do not make sense. Now, why did the Spirit of God guide Paul away here? I don't know. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven, right? Okay, remember that part in Acts 16? What was that about? But here's what I do know. That Paul was abiding in the Lord. So much so, abiding in Christ is always the foundation for being on mission for Christ. Let me repeat that. Abiding in Christ is always the foundation for being on mission for Christ. And there are times where God will guide you into Missional opportunities that do not make sense in human wisdom. And there are times, according to this passage, God will forbid you into things that you think are an open door. So be careful. Be careful with that open door theology. You know what's better than open door theology? Walking intimately with Jesus and being sensitive to the Spirit of God in your life. 
Because you know what I found with the open door theology? I'm an expert at ordaining open and closed doors for my own benefit, what I already wanna do. You ever notice that about yourself? You ever notice that the will of God for your life just so happens to be the thing that you already wanna do? <laughs> you know what I like when I challenge other people now? I think God's doing this. I say, well, I'd be careful about that. You know what their, their favorite pushback is? And I've heard this so many times. Well, pastor, I've prayed about it. And you know what that means? If you argue with me, you're arguing with God. I had someone come one day and said, you should consider resigning. I said, I don't think I should. They said, we've prayed about it. I said, so have I, and I think you should leave. That's what I said, right? Like, in love. I'm going to say, in love, I said that. No. But abiding in Christ should always be the foundation for being on mission for Christ. And Paul was walking with the Lord in such an intimate way that, that what made sense to him, go take the gospel, the spirit of God, sensed him and he yielded us there. He said, you can't go, I'm forbidding you. And Paul said, okay, I'll go in the other direction. I'll preach Christ where he's not known. Here's what I want you to be encouraged with this morning. You don't have to be gifted uniquely or trained professionally to be used of God. But you do have to be faithful. And we've seen all throughout the book of Acts that God uses ordinary everyday people like you and I, to accomplish the extraordinary work of bringing dead people to new life in Jesus Christ. And if that's God's plan, and what we've learned so far in 16 chapters, is it is his plan, here's my question. Why not you? Why not me? Why not now? Praise God, praise God, praise God. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I'm going to invite you to ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. And I'm going to ask you two questions this morning. Number one, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you if you repeated a prayer or walked down an aisle or got baptized or joined a church or I'm asking you this, does the evidence of your life say with integrity that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Does your life give evidence that you've repented of your sins and turned away from sin and self-righteousness and believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, here's the good news. Today is the day of salvation for you. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, right now in your seat, if the Spirit of God is drawing you, would you just pray and confess before the Lord, I'm a sinner desperately in need of forgiveness. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins was buried and raised the third day. And today, I want to receive him for the forgiveness of my sins. I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. If you've never done that or the evidence of your life indicates that you never have truly done that, right now, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you do that right now? For those of you in the room who are followers of Christ, many of you have 
heard your testimony. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you pray right now and ask the Lord to give you the boldness and the desire and the love for other people to pour your life into one person in 2022? Would you pray and say, God, I'm, I'm not like Paul. When someone asks me who I'm discipling, I, I don't have a Timothy in my life. Would you pray right now and say, Lord, give me the courage, the boldness, the intentionality, the margin, the conviction, the love for other people and for Jesus. That when I leave here today, I'm actively looking for one person outside of my family to pour my life into spirit, to invite them to follow me as I'm following Jesus the best that I know how. Would you pray that right now? God, we're so grateful that you use ordinary people like us and invite us into the most life-changing adventure in all the world, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. And so, Lord, may we lay aside the lie of being gifted. May we lay aside the lie of being filled with charisma. God, may we just commit ourselves afresh today to being faithful. Finding other people and pouring our life in them. Minimizing our liberties if the situation calls for it. And pursuing intimacy with Jesus so we can be led by the Spirit as we live on mission for you. God, find us faith. We need your help. Our hearts are prone to wander. So God, help us do what we would not do left to ourselves, but through Christ in us, there's hope that we can join you. And so we're grateful to God for that. Use us, Lord, in ways that we can't even imagine today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.